Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi and I'm joined by Lucy Dallas, apparently the only constant in these past few weeks in the wild presenting merry-go-round that is the TLS podcast these days. Lucy, welcome back. Hello. <laughs> welcome back to you. Welcome, well, I know, exactly. Fair, fair point. Fair point well made. Before we continue, I need to remind everyone again about a TLS subscription offer. Five issues for five pounds or dollars. And everything looks a little bit different now in a good way so uh, let us know what you think if that sounds good and you live in the US or Canada go to podcast.the-tls.com if you live anywhere else including the UK go to the-tls.co.uk slash pod19 Coming up on this week's show, football may once have been known as the beautiful game, but after decades of global scandals involving corruption, routine racism and often deadly violence, it's become increasingly difficult to see any hope in it at all. John Foote will shed some light on the mess. Just over 10 years ago, the American novelist Elizabeth Strout first introduced readers to a frustrated and acerbic maths teacher called Olive Kitteridge. Now she's back. The novelist talks to Rosdenine about her new novel, Olive Again. And it's 20 years since Clarissa Dixon Wright and Jennifer Patterson last graced our TV screens with their famously over-the-top cookery show, Two Fat Ladies, which seems, to me at least, reason enough to commission Anna Gerling to write a long, loving piece about them. seem odd to start the TLS podcast not with a rigorous engagement with, say, the radical marginalia of some 19th century poet, we'll save that for another week, but rather with an in-depth discussion of football. It shouldn't, quite frankly, if we consider the following question put to us rhetorically this week by John Foote. Apart from capitalism itself, he writes, is there any cultural and economic manifestation in the world today as ubiquitous, powerful and globalised as football? Indeed, the final decade of the 20th century and the first two of the 21st have brought us so very far, possibly with no return, from what he calls the game's innate purity. A ball, some flat ground, feet. 
Two new books, The Age of Football by David Goldblatt and Ultra, The World of Italian Football by Tobias Jones, will help us to fill in the picture. John Foote joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello, John. Hello, how are you? Um, So although these two books cover some of the same ground, they are quite different. So I wonder if we might start by discussing some of the common context here. Um, My layperson's understanding is that basically everything changed in the 1990s. What do we need to know? Well, they both deal, I think, with the importance of football to people and to the world in general. David Goldblatt's is a kind of magisterial the world tour of football, the globalised world of football, which covers almost every country in the world and looks at how football intersects with politics and so on there. Whereas Tobias is is, is a much more localised study, which deals with how football affects very, very hardcore fans in one country, Italy. But they're both dealing with issues of globalisation, of the kind of passion of football and all the kind of dark side as well, the violence, the racism, the problematic side of football which we've seen a lot about in recent times and so if you if you had to sort of summarize you know where the game is now which is in fact precisely what i'd like you to do please where where would you begin well i think the way david goldblatt begins his book is he sets out very clearly how this is the cultural manifestation of our time which is has the most power and reach of anything else nothing else reaches as far as football the audiences are absolutely enormous it reaches touches every single country in the world the major tournaments are watched by enormous amounts of people um in on all kinds of media but it also has a kind of movement of money and and uh, which is extraordinary you know kind of level of a major country almost so he taught you know that's where we are we're at a moment where this globalized game is is absolutely crucial to people's kind of lives and to the economic lives of these countries um, but at the same time the kind of local community parts of the game are being kind of slightly torn apart by this globalization so as the game becomes more global the the kind of local power of that game and the local control over that game and and by the fans for example is falling apart um, can I ask about the money side of things? When did it really open up in terms of huge sums of money? D- d- did that happen at the same time as the push towards globalisation? Is it the same thing, essentially? I think once you get TV rights um, becoming sold uh, in the 90s and 2000s in particular to um, uh, pay TV companies and then being transmitted to China, to Africa, to countries with enormous audiences for games particularly the premiership, but also the global tournaments. That money is just, um, you know, we can't even calculate how much it is. It's flowing into the game, uh, into FIFA, into UEFA, the kind of global organisations, but also into the national leagues. And that's gone right down. And that's really when, so it becomes the 90s and 2000s are going to take off. And, and then you have all the kind of add-on parts of that, which are betting, um, which are kind of um, internet discussions about football, social media, which has kind of magnified all that ability, podcasts, which are massive now, the the discussion about football, which is much more than the actual game itself. Mm. And, you know, every day now you can see five or six games. You can watch football all day if you want to. I don't know how anyone gets any work done, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so, I mean, is it is it is it fair to say, I mean, it's probably too simplistic to say that money changed everything it's more that money just intensified and sort of took things to their natural conclusion and that's why we're seeing the intense feelings the intense corruption is it too easy to be so nostalgic about 
the good old days. You know, football has always been tribal. You know, way back when you used to choose your, your team for religious reasons, didn't you? So it's always had that tribal us against them potential for violence and all of that sort of thing. Absolutely. I mean, there, there is a, a kind of nostalgia for the good old days. The hardcore fans in, in Tobias Jones's book are always going in about, we are against modern football. But it's not quite clear what that means exactly. Um, you know, there's kind of golden age, which, which didn't exist. And of course, there was violence in football going right back to the origins. There's been tribalism. But the money, you know, it was a working class game. It was a game that was largely watched by people in stadiums and now the kind of the media globalization is what changes things and the sort of detaching of those local loyalties you know that's becoming a major so a game between say liverpool and man united is yes watched by fans of liverpool and man united in the in the ground but no one that doesn't really matter what matters is there's an audience of you know 300 million across the world that's watching it and paying to watch it and betting on it and discussing it. So it, is, it has changed the nature of the game. And then those kind of local violences and, and, and tribalisms are still there. But in a context of, you know, enormous global power of these of these events. Um, and that wasn't there for most of the history of football. I suppose on on the the local level, but also on the institutional level, um, racism obviously comes up again and again and again. Um, I mean, how is it that it has failed to be to be rooted out? Is it a failure of an organised campaign against it, or I think it depends on the, on on the, on the footballing system and the cultures that you're you're talking about. And of course, football is not separate from society. On the contrary, it very much reflects it's it's a, a sounding board. So when the hardcore fans in Italy are racist against a player, they know that that is going to be reported by the world's press. They have an amazing visibility for their behaviour, and they can turn it off and on. So each each football system has different ways of dealing, and then you've got the international organisations. In Britain, actually, on the surface, things have got much better. Over the, I, When I used to go to games in the 70s, racism was completely open and it was collective, and every black player was booed and monkey chants, and that, was, and that is very rare now in the British game. But then in other systems, it hasn't been dealt with. And I think that's partly because of the cultures in those in those countries and not really necessarily because of football. Um, sometimes we think football can resolve the issues of society and it can't. Um, but the visibility is very high. And when the whole ground is being racist, I don't quite sure what you can do apart from call the game off. And this is the debate that's going on now. But yeah, so I was going to say, I mean, because the story of modern football is inseparable and, and the corruption of modern fo- football is inseparable from that of, of FIFA. FIFA is an extraordinary story and David Goldblatt's chapter on FIFA is, is fantastic. Uh, very funny as well. The book is, is very funny. It's, it's a dark book, but it's also hilarious and beautifully written. Um, and, he, you know, this is a, you know, a, a, a small organisation which became incredibly rich and kind of almost to its own surprise. And it's probably not that surprising that the corruption is of a very high level, given the massive amounts of money that flow into that game. And it's probably not that surprising that it's an extremely conservative and backward organisation. Um, to change something like that is very difficult. And I think what Goldblatt shows is also the interest of politics in football. That's always been there as well. But that is increasing in every single country. So Erdogan, you know, um, is very much interested in football. There's stuff in Indonesia going on. There's stuff in Africa about exploitation. George Weah has become president of an African country and former footballer. It's an extraordinary, this mix, very high level between football and uh, and politics. Can I ask also, if we're just talking about the, the cultures of it, um, there's also a very strong 
culture of uh, xenophobia and, and homophobia, particularly, and misogyny. But it seems to me that the, that the machismo of football is, mm. seems to be very strong and very pervasive, very little challenged. And the trick that the women's game has done is that in the women's game, even in, in, in the biggest ones, so I think that the biggest women's football star, Megan Rapinoe, everybody loves her, you know, she's an icon for her country, and she's gay, and nobody seems to have a problem with it, but in women's football it's somehow okay, and in men's football it's not. Why do you think that is? One of the positive stories in David's book is is, um, is that of the rise of women's football, which seems, you know, almost exponential. Last weekend, I think there were 40,000 um, fans at a game in London, and that was inconceivable even a year ago or two years ago. Uh, and it's it's really interesting. And I think there is a different culture there, um, not just um, amongst the players, but also um, amongst the fans. Um, and it's all taking off at the level of, of, of girls, you know, much younger girls playing as well. But it's really changing things. And I think that's really interesting that the more progressive side of football is in, is in the women's game. No male footballer has come out, um, as far as I know, while they're still playing. No no professional male footballer. And then they've come, some have come out after they've left the game. But none has come out. Not a single one has come out. And, of course, that's statistically ridiculous. Well, it's just an um, extraordinary it's, kind of situation, yeah. isn't it? It's a very conservative world. It's a very closed world. It's a very macho world. And uh, to change that is extremely difficult, I think. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily FIFA or UEFA or the football associations. But it is something that seems like almost a, fr- a throwback to, mm. you know, 80 years ago or 90 years ago within those cultures. And it's also to do with the fans, I think, and the different fan cultures that you get in men's and women's football. Let's talk about Tobias Jones's book a little bit more, with a little bit more focus. We've been here before. I mean, you mentioned Tim Parks's book on the ultra of, of Verona. What does Tobias Jones do differently? Or, or, you know, how does he explain his decision to write about the ultras of, of Cosenza in Calabria? I think what, what he's doing is, is in, his story is very dark in general. He's writing about these hardcore fans who are often linked to organised crime, who are often very violent, who are often into, into drugs and have a lot of power within the stadiums. And he needs, I mean, he really needed a story that wasn't that dark. And I think he found, you know, these censor ultras who are kind of the opposite in many ways. They're still hardcore fans, but they're kind of anti-racist, anti-fascist, inclusive. And so he kind of, half of his story is told through, he embeds himself in those in those group and goes to all these crazy games. And, and that's kind of what Tim Parks did. But Tim Parks was with, with some bad guys, <laughs> you know, the Verona ones, who are almost the opposite extreme of uh, to the Cosenza. So, you know, there's a lot of human interest stories in, in Tobias's um, Cosenza Ultras, and you get quite interested in the in- individual characters uh, that he picks out and he follows around, not all men, some of them are women as well, who go absolutely mad, you know, travel for hours across Italy to see Cosenza, who are pretty terrible most of the time. <laughs> um, so I think that, that story provides a counter to his, you know, which is a lot of the rest of it is very dark and very violent and, you know, almost un- very hard to kind of read in some ways because it's really terrifying that world i suppose they represent precisely what you were talking about before the old way of being is there any chance of of returning to that i mean how do we undo where we are now well they still have power within the stadiums they're resisting they're resisting the kind of modernization of the game the, the what happened to to the british premiership where, where the, the, the stadium became all seater became very bourgeois it became very middle class you know everybody goes to you know you can go with your children they're resisting all that they want it to be nasty and that, that and, was a, that was a direct response to to hooliganism was it i didn't i hadn't realized that 
Yes, I mean the British, the change to the British system really came out after hooliganism, but also particularly after Hillsborough mm-hmm. and 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 the tragedy there, and that and you know the stadiums had to be made safe. But the outcome of it wasn't a very rich league, but also one that was, you know, gentrified, and stadiums were beautiful and, and all seater, and you know the the violence was taken out of that system over quite a long period of time. That's not true of the Italian stadia. And you still have the, the large standing sections. And that's what where, where the ultras stand. And that's what they, they want to keep those for themselves. Also, because that's where they do their kind of dirty business as well. Um, so it's a battle over power and it's a battle over legality. And it's a battle that's ongoing. And I think Tobias's book is very good at, at kind of picking out the in- intricacies of, of where their power is. And, you know, even after his book was published, one of the people he talked about was murdered in a park. Um, it's kind of front page news in Italy, one of the ultra leaders. So it's a pretty violent world that he's um, he's dealing with. Yeah. Um, well, John Foote, we could probably talk about this from, from I feel like I have an awful lot to learn. Um, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Did you grow up with football? A bit. A bit. Not really. I, I remember hearing a bit of shouting from the telly. Yeah. And then I started watching it a bit when I lived in France and got really into it, into the, the Azzurri. Oh, really? Actually. Because I saw a game with them and oh my gosh, was it the final? Team. Was it the nineteen ninety six? Maybe World Cup it final? was. I was in I France. I genuinely that. can't I remember. remember. I remember a cockerel on a on a pub table. But I suddenly watched it and went, Horrendous. "Oh, this is great!" <laughs> because when it's good, yeah, it's 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 the highest possible drama, mm. and you don't know what's going to happen. And it's also high skill. That thing about people working at their absolute mm. top limit when it's good it's wonderful mm. but there's like a really a lot that isn't good yeah as you say on the pitch and very much off it yeah where i live actually is is one of the few places i think it might be the first place that decided to pay the women's team the same as men's team hallelujah hallelujah there we go ending on a positive note I don't think that's ever happened <laughs> <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Olive Kitteridge has become one of those fictional characters who seem to live independently of their books. She was the focus of Elizabeth Strout's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of 2008, which is, in fact, a collection of linked stories. Olive is an unusual central character, described in The Guardian neatly last month as one of the great difficult women of American literature. In the novel, we're told, she didn't like to be alone. Even more, she didn't like being with people. And now, ten or so years after her first appearance, she's back in the novel Olive again. Our features editor, Ros Deneen, talked to Elizabeth Strout and began by asking how Olive Kittredge first came to her as a character. Olive Kittredge came... Um really fully formed. And the first time she showed up with the original Olive Kittredge book, I was unloading the dishwasher. And I I always remember she was just right there. It was like if there was a presence behind me. And I could hear the inside of her head thinking, it's high time everyone left. I saw a picnic table, which I've never had. I don't even know anybody who has a picnic table. But I saw a picnic table and I heard the inside of her head and I realized she was at her son's wedding. And that was the first story that I wrote. But she was there, and I really did not have to dig too far to find her because she's so olive. She presented yeah. herself very yeah. clearly. And the and and she's so she's so olive. She's so one way, but she's also so so many contradictions. Yes, and she's so full of contradictions. Complex, and yeah. that scene you describe. It's eviscerating at her son's wedding. Yes. And she's in her dress and she hears someone criticising her dress. Right. It's, it, and that's really the first time, and that's in the first book, you feel her massive vulnerability, yes. I felt, was in that, that's right. that moment. And it's interesting, that's the first. That was the first one. And that's also when she takes that wound about her dress, which she's proud of because she's made it mm. and she hears her daughter-in-law criticizing it mm. you know through the window then that's also when she takes her revenge on her daughter-in-law and steals her bra and one shoe yeah and that was um that was a lot of fun to write I had no idea that that would happen but that's what I felt Olive would do at that moment yeah and there's moments as well there's so, so many very characteristic Olive things she does and I feel that in the second book, there's kind of even more oxygen to her. So yes. she's even more oxygenated. But one of my favourite things, as she's leaving, she's always waving right. her hand she above her head. She waves her hand above her head, like, right. To the yeah. people behind her. It's so, it's sort of, yeah. it's so dismissive. Yes. Um, in My Name is Lucy Barton, which was a, a previous mm -hmm. book, the character Lucy says something like that she always knew without question that she would be a writer. There was no sort of disturbing that idea have you always operated with the same certainty not only in your own life but also when you're when you're looking at when you're dealing with characters like olive is there a real certainty about their destination to you their destination that's interesting i never really know what a character will do mm -hmm. until they do it mm -hmm. i mean like when olive stole that bra i had no idea she would do that i was just feeling her wound you know about the dress and then i thought okay well she'll get up off the bed and she'll walk around and there's the bureau and now you know let's open the drawer and oh look all these little bras are there and you know let's take one so i don't really know until it happens what they will do but mm. I do know who they are mm. you see what I mean yeah and it's interesting at the end of towards the end of Olive again um because throughout the books there seems to be this narrative that Olive does sort of know who she is and there's a wonderful quote which I love in one of the stories in which a a, a daughter is 
is telling her parents something about herself mm-hmm. and she remembers her math teacher who was Olive right. and she says um, one day she stopped a math problem she was doing on the board and she turned around and she said to the class you all know who you are if you just look at yourself and listen to yourself you know exactly who you are and don't forget it and so this inspired this character right. to move on. <laughs> but then towards the end of her life Olive seems to be questioning whether right. she ever really knew herself. Exactly. And that was part of the evolution of the book for me. Um, as I as I sort of watched it come together, I realized, okay, this woman who is so forthright in so many ways actually begins to understand that she doesn't really know who she's been in yeah. a certain kind of way. Yeah. Or who she's how other people right. have have perceived have her perceived or or her. what or the damage that she's done to people. Yeah. And there's and there's a moment as well when her son, Christopher, oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about in these books, but I think the arc between Christopher and his mother is is incredible. And when he moves mm. he moves to New York with yeah. his second wife and that whole scene in their that story in their new house is just yeah. astonishing. And at one point he turns to his mother and calls her a narcissist which right. actually can be quite a surprise for the reader, perhaps, right. depending on how you're reading. Right. And do you think this is a term that's bandied about a bit too much now? Do you think Olive is a narcissist? Do you think... You know, I don't I don't know that she's a narcissist. I think that Christopher thinks she is. Mm. And, um, and that he would be of the generation that would use that word more frequently mm. than somebody like Olive, who's really quite surprised to hear that about herself. Um, I think she has narcissistic qualities, but I don't know that she would be a full-blown narcissist. Yeah, because it's a very sort of nuanced view of parenting in all of your books, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes examples of really obvious parental cruelty. And there's a lot of parents who are doing their best and finding out that their best is not good enough and right. their best is actually quite harmful and there's also a lot of forgiveness in the relationships between parents and their children. It, was parenting something that you particularly wanted to explore and expose? It just came organically with yeah. what I was working on, you know, because these these characters either are parents or they have parents. Mm. And so that would just be a part of what I was doing with the character mm-hmm. and and exploring, therefore, that relationship. Yeah. Um, and... At one point, there's a character in the new book, Suzanne, and she realises something about her family and she says, oh, my God, these people, how did I get out alive? Right. And do you think that that's a... It feels like that that's a, a common realisation throughout the books, people looking back and seeing something about their upbringing suddenly very differently to right. how they expected it. Right. And again, that's not something that I deliberately went to the page to do because that's an idea. Mm. And I don't go with an idea. You know, I always go with a character. So when I'm working, I'm working on a character and with a character and then I will look back and realize, oh, look, <laughs> yeah. there's there's a theme that's going on here yeah. throughout the book. But I don't go to the book with that in mind. Elizabeth Strout talking to Ros Deneen. You'll find the full interview in your podcast feed. Now, I hope everyone recognises this theme tune. (laughs) 
your taste buds for gastronomic pride. Because two fat ladies are itching up to get into your kitchen. Yeah! Isn't that pheasant pleasant? Um, yes, those are the opening credits of The Two Fat Ladies, the famously decadent BBC cookery show starring Clarissa Dixon-Wright and Jennifer Patterson, which ran for four series from 1996 until it left our TV screens, but gladly not the internet, in 1999. So... Why are we talking about it now? Well, some months ago, I was scrolling aimlessly through my Twitter feed. I was on a delayed train. You can picture the scene. I'm sure most of us know it well. When I saw a burst of unbridled enthusiasm from Anna Girling, who had, I think, just discovered that one of her cookbooks had previously belonged to Clarissa Dixon Wright. I immediately recognised a fellow Two Fat Ladies fan and emailed Anna to commission 2,000 or so of her finest words. What a dream, came Anna's reply with three exclamation marks which I would usually consider a little bit over the top, but which in this case seems utterly justified, understated even. And this, exclamation marks, gushing praise, lashings of camp joie de vivre and tongue and cheekery is, of course, what the two fat ladies was all about, really. Anna Girling, whose celebration appears in this week's TLS, joins us on the line from Edinburgh now to discuss the show and its legacy. Hello, Anna. Hello. Yes, I'm still embarrassed by this exclamation. <laughs> I couldn't help I'm myself. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled by them. Um, OK, well, so tell us, what was it like to re-immerse yourself in 24 episodes worth of The Ladies? Well, it was an utter, utter joy, of course. Um, I was still at school when they were first on TV, so not in charge of my own viewing habits. Um, so I'm not sure I sort of ever watched every single episode. And as luck would have it, I hurt my back over the summer. So I was able to have a convalescent week just watching them back to back. And it was just joyful. I will say I got a bit sick of the theme tune. I, um, I <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry about that. I'm pleased to say it was, I loved hearing it just now. So obviously I got over that. Um, so it was just a, it was a very happy, lovely um, thing to be able to watch them again and to realise actually they weren't, they were so much more than the caricatures I had of them in my head. I think that's what really struck me the most about them. Well, so what what would you say those caricatures were? Well, I go into this a little bit in the piece I wrote for you, that I think it's really been coloured by Clarissa Dixon Wright and the writing she did after um, Jennifer Patterson's death. Um, I feel like we think of them as being very country, very tweedy and just also being, well, very unhealthy. I think that's really that was kind of what a lot of um, press commentators said at the time and what got them their fame in America I think really was that they you know, they were just unhealthy for the sake of being unhealthy and I think that neither of those things are true neither are they just tweedy countryside people or are they just unhealthy for the sake of being unhealthy well and you touched on something interesting there you mentioned um, their status in the US, which is, I mean, it's not just us, is it? Just to, to emphasise that this feature is not that off the wall. I mean, they are, they were a massive deal. They, they were a phenomenon. In the introduction to one of their books, their producer, Patricia Llewellyn, who um, created them, put them together and seems to have been universally adored by everyone within the TV industry. Um, she writes about going to America with them both and they were mobbed in America, mobbed in New York. They met Keanu Reeves by the pool at Chateau Marmont, and he was a fan. Really? <laughs> um, that must be a hell of a photo, that one. <laughs> <laughs> record of that. Um, so they really were huge. And according to Wikipedia, I haven't seen this myself, um, the Gilmore Girls references them. Yes, I've seen that uh, in the opening yeah, credits. Yeah, so it really 
interesting. I think it's. I think they're repeated a lot. You know, I think lots of old cookery shows are repeated on various food networks, and I think they're regularly repeated. Um, so they're still, you know, I think of them as being around when I was a teenager. I think even you know, people in their twenties now probably, you know, still know who they are. Do you think they were popular in the US partly because they just seemed so very English? because oh, yeah. of the kind of because you say there's the sort of two sides they're very establishment aren't they but there's a sort of boho this is very broad but there's a kind of boho side which is jennifer patterson and the sort of fox hunting side which is clarissa dixon right is that fair or unfair do you think that's yeah i think that's absolutely fair and i guess that's what um surprised me most because i i think it's partly because i live in edinburgh um but where the clarissa dixon right lived here and so the mm. fox hunting um image is really you know, strong in my mind of many people who live here that's the image we have of the two fat ladies we think of Clarissa and her tweet going on countryside alliance marches um whereas yeah Jennifer was I mean obviously you know from a very you know well-to-do background but very boho you know she's part of the swinging 60s in London um you know really quite you know, shabby chic and very very cosmopolitan you know she toured america with the um, intersex sculptress um fiore de henriquez who you know was a really interesting character in her own right she knew quentin chris she knew christopher isherwood she knew truman capote she knew lots of really fascinating um intellectuals in a way that clarissa didn't and i think that's maybe i don't know maybe lost to us by the fox hunting image and it, um yeah, but why do the Americans love them? Perhaps, it, yeah, it's the Britishness, but also the, perhaps the combination of the campness with the poshness. I think mm. they're described somewhere as, I assume this applies to both of them, large, posh, middle-aged women. Well, that's um, how Patricia Llewellyn um, put it. She, it's, she'd met Clarissa Dixon Wright and thought, oh, I want to put her in a TV show, a cookery show. And then someone else knew of her weakness for, or her fondness for posh middle-aged women and <laughs> introduced her to Jennifer Patterson. And she saw Jennifer kind of ride off slightly drunk on her motorbike after a boozy lunch. And that was it. You know, she thought, oh, I can just see it now. And well, that, that's, that would have been... I mean, they do make quite an unlikely pair though they may both be sort of similar in some respects that there was there was there was much talk about a, poten- a possible feud i think yes and i i don't know i'm quite dismissive of this um i think that they, they're not natural kindred spirits i think partly age but just partly attitudes to life and to drinking you mentioned that specifically yeah yeah because clarissa was a reformed alcoholic jennifer drank a lot I think this is interesting. I think Clarissa, in the writing she did after Jennifer's death, really is responsible for how we think of Jennifer um, in many ways. I have to say, I became slightly obsessed with Jennifer while writing this piece. But uh, Jennifer did drink a lot, but she was uh, highly functional, um, whereas Clarissa had been a really destructive or self-destructive alcoholic. And it burnt through her inheritance and lost every single relationship she'd, she'd ever had, kind of thing, and had been through AA. And so she, in her writing after Jennifer's death, says, of course, Jennifer was an alcoholic, but wouldn't admit it to herself. But I think that's not quite fair. So I think that Jen- Clarissa obviously resented the fact that Jennifer drank a lot. I think Jennifer probably resented Clarissa's, I don't know, what's the word, professionalism. You know, Clarissa had trained to be a barrister. <laughs> and, you know, it's quite, quite, you know, she was very well educated. And Jennifer wished she'd been to university. Jennifer was obviously very clever. One of her brothers is a ambassador to somewhere you know she's a, a bright clever well-read woman but who hadn't received 
education beyond the age of 15 because she was a daughter rather rather than a son. I think she really resented that. Whereas Clarissa had had everything and kind of thrown it away. And I think Clarissa was quite patronising to Jennifer quite often on screen. This is what I began to feel watching all of the episodes sort of together. So I'm not sure there was a few, but I think they weren't kindred spirits. Yeah. And I think that they, you know, they weren't friends. That we want, them, we want them desperately to be friends. I think that's yeah. what we maybe want. And they just weren't friends. They didn't socialise together. Well, it didn't. So, um, Clarissa didn't drink, so she wouldn't have been. You know, wouldn't have enjoyed socialising with Jennifer anyway. Well, it sounds like it would have been impossible to do one without the other. I suppose. Exactly. Exactly. All of these these tensions managed, nonetheless, to kind of coalesce around a quite strict an ordered formula. Give us a sense of a, a, a kind of a, tif- a typical episode. Well, after the theme tune, you'd usually get some you know, wonderful um, panoramic shot of the two of them. You know, well, Jennifer on the motorbike and Clarissa in the sidecar, um, wedged in, riding through the beautiful countryside or sometimes through London on their way to some slightly incongruous, I always feel, um, location such as an Irish convent or an army base or scout camp. Um, And then they arrive and there's always a slightly bemused host who has to show them around. (laughs) in the kitchen and you can see that you know they're just sort of dazzled um these two women and then they get to work in the kitchen cooking a menu which bears no resemblance or sort of no connection to the people they're going to be cooking for <laughs> or and the dishes also don't really hang together often i think you know it just seems to be a random mishmash of dishes that they've decided they want to make maybe the, maybe there's a, a theme that i've you know i've missed somewhere but that's the impression i get so i give this example in the piece they cook for a, a pony club in the Cotswolds and I found this episode really interesting because because Clarissa is clearly kind of trying to suck up to the posh mummies and <laughs> Jennifer just has no interest in this at all <laughs> and no interest in the children um, and then they, they announce their menu and it's just so ridiculous um, it's highly spiced kind of Portuguese stew with um, pork and clams and then garlicky potatoes and everything's spicy and rich and exotic and you sort of look at these sort of Eight, eight or ten year old little kind of horse riders and it just seems so ridiculous um anyway so they 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 start cooking and usually there's a little foray off to discuss an ingredient with a fishmonger or a farmer and then they come back and keep cooking but most of it is them in the kitchen you know slightly clunkily alongside each other cooking not together but next to each other and all the places that they go to, as you say, they're incongruous. And it's funny because they're, they're very trad places. Like you say, they go to a Cotswold Pony Club and they go to a convent and what else did you say? An army base, Lincoln's Inn Barristers. Um, Lots of aristocrats' homes. Yeah. Or aristocrats feature quite heavily, which is probably also think? something that's skewed. I think that's really the later series and mm. the last book. Because actually there's not that many aristocrats homes. That sounds In a bit... The earlier ones. to defend them. It's, it's more kind of institutions, really. Yeah, like right, it. OK. Um, but they, they and, themselves, so the, 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 the places are very traditional, but they, because you say in the piece, don't you, they were not like traditional female cooks because they were not cooking for a family. They don't say, oh, you can just throw this together when everyone gets home or anything like that. They're not doing that. As you said, Patterson really wasn't interested in the little children. <laughs> not at all no um i think and at the end of the episode she says oh i don't think that's quite the thing for these little children and like, with a <laughs> wicked grin you know she knows what she's doing now i was really struck also because i assumed they were going to be cooking for families before i rewatched. and i after watching all four series i realized they don't ever cook for a family not once and they're going to these traditional places but often it's single 
sex spaces, which I find quite interesting. So they mm. go to a girls' school or an army camp or a scout camp or a convent. You know, so these single sex spaces, not quite queer, but definitely not, you know, not heteronormative, traditional or, or domestic at all. Well, and in fact, so it's, I mean, it's very much not a domestic situation. And in fact, the food is all, as you said, it's all over the top. It's incredibly rich. It's all, it's food for celebrating. It's food for, you know, that that's sort of the point, isn't it? It's food for entertaining. Um, I think that's the point. It's not food, you know, it's not kind of Jamie's dinner for one or whatever. You come home you know, after work and whip up a sausage feast or something. It's more, you know, if you want to cook, dinner for a large group of friends. Here's some lovely dishes you can make. Or if you want to celebrate the summer by going out for a picnic with friends, why don't you make this lovely picnic dish? It is about celebrating occasions and people. Yeah, it's not every day. And the word treat is used quite a lot. They often, you'll say, oh, this is a nice treat. You know, I think and there's a place in life for treats. You know, they're not, so it doesn't seem unhealthy in that context, I don't think. You know, we're all allowed nice food um, occasionally, surely. <laughs> I hope so. You would hope so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It was interesting. I was um, I was I was actually gifted a copy of the final cookbook, uh, Obsession, some years back, and I can't say I've ever cooked a single thing from it, but I love that it exists. Mm. <laughs> um, but so that's how you think we should remember them: a celebration of pleasure and abandon. I mean, I wouldn't quite say abandon, but definitely. <laughs> Sorry, I got a bit carried away there. Easy tiger, <laughs> just treats, just treats. <laughs> Well, I think because they are they're from a you know, well, especially Jennifer, they're from this kind of generation that I don't think we know how lucky we are sometimes. You know, decadence but within reason. You couldn't really afford to be completely abandoned. You know, Jennifer grew up during the war. So mm. I think a treat you know, a few prawns can be a treat. You don't need to it's not really about overindulgence, it's about indulgence and not overindulgence, I would say. Well, it seems that seems a solid a solid lesson for us all. Um Anna Girling, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm only sorry that you weren't able to join us in person as I was looking forward to seeing your new shade of Jennifer Patterson-inspired lipstick. <laughs> I do own it. I almost put it on. But I haven't is it called Gay Geranium? It is. How could you resist? Yeah. That's a good name for a lipstick. <laughs> name, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Anna. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Um, that is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Anna Girling, John Foote and Elizabeth Strout. Do pick up a copy of the TLS when you can in this week's issue. You'll also find two very different views of the late Harold Bloom, a reappraisal of the work of the pre-Raphaelite sisters, a fantastical account of dressing the Queen, a biography of Ken Dodd, a comedian once as famous as the Beatles, and Lee Child's thoughts on etymology and opium. We'll be back next week, of course, so till then, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.